Slayman Pascal here on the Integral Stage Meta Podcast, where we podcast podcasters, broadcast broadcasters, and generally dig in wherever anyone's trying to bring forth higher, deeper, or more transformative ideas through online projects. Today, we're going to check in on the Game B social network with a friend of the show, the pistol-toting Joseph Goebbels of Metaphysics, a guy who plays a naive realist on TV, the first member of Crocus Raven, and the host of the Jim Rutt Show. It's Jim Rutt. Hey, Jim. Hey, Layman. Good to be back. <laughs> so, what's the status update? Where are we at in the Game B exodus from Facebook? We are doing it. The uh, the Game B home, as we've decided to call it, is up and running, and we have, we're now well past the tipping point where there's much more activity now on our own Game B home site than there was on the old Facebook group. Uh, so people want to check it out, game-b.org, and you'll be asked three questions. You got to answer them. And when it asks where you heard about it, you say on Lehman Pascal's podcast from that asshole Jim Rutt. And if you leave the asshole out, we won't let you in. <laughs> so uh, how many members have you got so far? And um, what kind of participation levels are you seeing from members? Uh, quite good. The total numbers as of this morning was about 800. And uh, it's growing, you know, continuing to grow rapidly. Uh, we'll pass a thousand here in the next few days. And the, uh, uh, the activity level is great. It's interesting. The activity level is different than it is on Facebook. Mm. Uh, and it's in a good way. Uh, probably the aggregate number of posts of comments is somewhat less because of the, the UI design, I think. But they're more thoughtful. They're more germane. Uh, the posts are more germane. This is uh, something that I was not necessarily expecting, that the differences in the UI uh, have actually resulted in a higher quality discourse, without a doubt. Uh, it's actually quite remarkable that the, 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 you know, the differences, which are moderate. Right. You know, it's, it's, what are those differences and how, how do you think they're leading to that difference in quality of output? Uh, you know, it's not quite so straight. I mean, it's still very straightforward to make a comment, but there isn't this, you know, box that's trying to, you know, flash at you and encourage you to put out your every thought on everything. You have to kind of read through all the other comments and then put your comment in and, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, also, the way the graphics are presented is a bit more subdued. You know, it does have the uh, preview functions. If you put a link to a article or a book or something in there, you do get a nice little graphic, but it's not as you know, just grossly screaming at you. Uh, so I would say overall, the uh, UI is cooler. It's a cooler UI. It is not designed to inflame. And uh, that seems to be actually passing through to the discourse, which is good. Yeah, that's definitely what I found in using it. Uh, and this is a great point, Brent, because I was going to ask you about the intersubjective vibe of the space. Like, are you getting the kinds of conviviality and mutual sense making that make you feel really optimistic that this could be, you know, the launching point for something or a growth vector for some kind of new community? I think so. Uh, again, it's too early to tell because uh, now the risk, there is one risk at going at your alone uh, is that people have to maintain the habit of visiting, 
right? Most people go to Facebook every day, even though it's a waste of time and a toxic cesspool. You know, it's a little harder to get that level of commitment on a new standalone site, but so far, so good. Uh, the other thing I love about it, and one of the reasons I chose the Mighty Networks uh, platform, uh, is it has very good group support uh, that's integrated uh, right into the platform. On Facebook, we had a real kludge where we had like 21 different Facebook groups that were loosely linked through some thing called the Game B homepage. Oh, damn. That was about the best we could do so that we could have special interests, right? Because the main group, was, there was too much traffic in it. Uh, and so we, you know, spun out Game B parenting, Game B education, Game B intentional communities, uh, et cetera. In fact, let me uh, pull up the current list of groups we have so far. And yeah. just in, you know, 10 days, two weeks, uh, we've spun up quite a few. One of the most active is Game B literature. It's a brand new one. Uh, books relevant to building Game B. Uh, monetary systems in Game B. That's another new one. I don't even know how to pronounce this one. Atheopolis, Game B for cities. How Game B relates to life in big cities. <laughs> Falling forward, learning from the past. What can Game B learn from previous efforts? Uh, political metamodernism in Game B, basically linking the uh, Hansi Freinet communities and uh, uh, the Game B communities, of which there's a fair amount of overlap. Uh, you know, not, not 100% agreement, but, uh, you know, we're stealing ideas from them and they're stealing ideas from us, you know, just as, uh, you know, people that are engaged in, uh, in, in moving in generally the same uh, direction often do. Game B in the nation states. Uh, you know, one of the things that we have typically banned from the Facebook group is discussions of uh, game A politics or, you know, political campaigns or anything like that. Uh, but, you know, there's some discussions that sh should be had in that space. So we built a sp special group where people can talk about how Game B could or ought to or ought not to engage with the nation uh, space. Talk about, uh, you know, classic Game B project. Uh, before we open this thing up to a broader public here in the next uh, couple of weeks, uh, I want to have, I wanted to have created or we wanted to have created a uh, really nice overview of what is Game B that could go on the uh, the landing page. And so uh, rather than having the old warlords write one, uh, we decided to create a writing project. It's called Writing Project, What is Game B? Uh, explaining Game B in five minutes or less. Uh, it's actually, I think, the most active of all the uh, groups currently. And the people are uh, creating this document on a Google Doc that's linked in relatively organically into the group. Uh, 43 people working on it. Pretty cool. Permaculture in Game B. Game B parenting. Help and answers. Just for, if you need help on something, pose it. Uh, the most, actually, the most active one is Game B intentional communities. Uh, 73 members. And then the always popular Game B projects, which was one of the most popular uh, of the uh, satellite groups over on Facebook, uh, 72, where people basically provide updates on their projects, get perspective from other people doing Game B things, et cetera. And then last but not least, the Game B Social Club, place to hang out, loosen up, and be convivial. <laughs> so, uh, shit, you know, for as short a time as we've been up, I think there's as many, as many, as many active groups as there were on Facebook after a year. So uh, uh, the group functionality is really nice uh, over there on Mighty. Terrific. And maybe it's a little bit too early, but what are you hearing from participants? What features do they really like? 
Uh, you know, are you hearing people pushing up against limits where there might need to be a modification to the structure or anything like that? What kinds of positive and negative feedback are you hearing? I've heard nothing but positive, which is unusual, right? As somebody who's been building online systems for 40 years, God damn it. I've hardly ever seen uh, a unani- unanimity of, uh, of positive. Uh, lots of people comment on the, uh, the UI, that it is you know, cool, calm, and efficient, that the functionality that, we're, that they want is there, uh, that it's very easy to use. Uh, interest, I'll give you an, an, another uh, interesting testimony to the positive feedback. Uh, we also run another group called the Proto B Incubator for people who are actually working on building on the ground communities to apply Game B Living to. And we built that on Basecamp. And it was working. Uh, it was a quite vibrant community, you know, much, much smaller, uh, specialized uh, community. And uh, we did our monthly all hands uh, video meeting uh, earlier this week. And, you know, the first thing people wanted to talk about is uh, can we move the uh, Proto B incubator over to Mighty Networks? And uh, we decided to do so. So all those people are members of the, uh, are also members of the, uh, Game B Home, uh, and uh, you know their unanimous, uh, near unanimous, strong request was, "Hell, we'd love to have uh, this thing moved over there." So I've already done that. We haven't opened it up yet, but we'll have a Proto B incubator, which will continue to operate as a private group by invitation only uh, for people who are actually building or in the serious planning stages of building on the ground uh, Game B community. So that's another testimony: people who have been using one of the old war horses, Base Camp. Uh, for several months now, once they got exposed to uh, the Mighty uh, implementation, at least the version we uh, created for uh, Game B Home, uh, wanted that for the uh, the incubator. So far, so good then. Now, speaking of uh, Proto B projects, 2021 is a special year for the prophet Jim Rutt, because this is the moment in his speculative future history when, given no extraordinarily civilization-wide collapses, that the proto-beehives are supposed to start their experiments in earnest. And I believe it will happen. In fact, uh, obviously, the the Game Bee social network platform has real potential to help make that an actuality. But I thought it might be good to take a step back and talk a little bit about what you call pre-bee, the preliminary phase that lays the groundwork for the proto-bee era. Maybe you could give us a kind of overview of the contours of the pre-bee epoch. Yeah, and, uh, and that's where most of us, all, in fact, frankly, all of us are in today is proto-bee. I mean, is in pre-bee. Uh, we don't yet actually have any proto-bees up and running, though one of the projects in the incubator uh, closed on its land in the last couple of weeks. So, yay. So we will make uh, 2021. There will be at least one, I'm going to bet, uh, two uh, on-the-ground proto-bees uh, who will open their doors by the end of the year. So it's happening. Uh, but, you know, most of us live in the pre-B world where we're trying to uh, learn more about Game B, create what Game B is. Because, you know, again, it's a self-authoring system. There is no book that says, here is the doctrines of Game B. Uh, it's something we're, uh, you know, inventing uh, from some very basic general principles, uh, which we've had for quite a while. But, uh, that you know, that work continues. And we also are continuing to work on ourselves. You know, I laid out in my uh, essay, A Journey to Game B, a whole series of things that, uh, you know, that we should be working on, uh, you know, prior to the Proto B uh, epoch. Uh, you know, let's, let's get, you know, get our fin- personal finances in order. Uh, you know, let's 
basically find the others and start to interact with them, you know, not just online, but locally too. Now, I got to say, COVID's obviously thrown a, a damper on that. Uh, but once the, uh, the cloud of COVID finally starts to, uh, you know, relax, maybe by this fall, maybe even the summer, if we're lucky, uh, I, I'm going to strongly suggest, I think people are ready for it, start local chapters, right? Uh, get together once a month and do a potluck dinner and let's talk and, you know, learn, uh, learn who else in your community is interested in this stuff and what, and what can you uh, do together? You know, learn some skills, uh, you know, some skills that might be useful, uh, you know, on the land or, you know, in practical work, you know, build houses, uh, do gardening, uh, et cetera. So there's a number of things. And then uh, we also talk about uh, uh, that people should uh, work on their personal sovereignty, which is to learn how not to be dominated by game A propaganda uh, and to be able to actually be a sovereign actor on one's own and one's community's behalf. So uh, lot to lots to work on here in the pre-B era. Nice. Do you have kids, Jim? I do. Uh, I have a daughter and I now have a granddaughter. Beautiful. Yeah, we got a couple. And so I th I'm in the Game B parenting group. Uh, you know, I'm really curious about the educational element. And one of the things that, you know, I think of a lot is even in a, a proto B or early B era, you know, when you're raising kids, there might be a lot of analogy between the pre B skills and the skills you need to cultivate in children who are coming up to inhabit proto B or early B civilizations. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, and and I'm curious uh, about like, what's your overall attitude towards education? Like what have you seen work like maybe with your own kids, but also in yourself, because you're a guy who somehow in his life got up to speed, got ready for a game B type civilization. What, what worked in your education at school or at home and what didn't work? That's a good question. Those are two very different questions, I think. I had a very conventional, you know, working class public school education, pretty good quality one, uh, considering that 50% of the adults in our community were high school dropouts. Uh, nonetheless, most of them uh, were pro-education. Our public schools were pretty decent. Uh, so I had nothing special in uh, my K-12 other than we had pretty good teachers. You know, uh, college, I... Uh, you know, the usual shit. So I don't think uh, formal education uh, was a large amount of uh, how I found my way to Game B. It was, uh, you know, more through reading and thinking. And that's where our group Game B literature, I think, is very useful. Uh, you know, one of the books I uh, recommend people start with is something called Thinking, uh, Seeing Like a State. Uh, it's a very interesting book. Uh, in fact, let me pull up the author's name here. Uh, got so many interesting books already in this uh, thing. Oh, God damn, where's mine? Yeah, Seeing Like a State by James C. Scott uh, is a really interesting book uh, that was one of the things that opened my eyes to uh, that there are other ways to see than to see like a nation state. Uh, you know, I also, uh, a lot of the reading I did on monetary theory, I mean, the the thing that eventually led to the, the Emancipation Party and uh, Game B was actually the research I did on alternative monetary systems, oddly enough. And so uh, I may not be a good example because I've always been a self-learner, uh, but that's how I got here, was uh, just following my interests and eventually it led here. Okay. <laughs> um, what about... 
Um, give us a snapshot of what the Proto B epoch might look like if it goes well. Ah, well, I think that this is where it gets real interesting. Uh, one of the very important ideas about Proto B is there's no single formula. Uh, the idea is that uh, people should uh, create social operating systems for the scale of their Proto B. Uh, and they may differ quite considerably. Some of the, some proto bees may have most of their people doing work on uh, in companies or industries on the proto bee site itself. Others may not. Some may be all, you know, they may be in a very uh, rural location, but doing all their work online, for instance. That's a model uh, that people have looked at. Other ones where people would have a mix where they'd still have day jobs in town, right? For ones that are closer to, uh, to you know, smaller or, or larger cities, et cetera. Uh, the other thing that's becoming very clear looking at the projects in the incubator uh, is the continuum from essentially a residential subdivision plus plus all the way on to a full-on intentional community. And people are exploring along that complete dimension. Uh, with, I think, a lot of the projects in between, you won't necessarily have, uh, you know, endless uh, Saturday night governance meetings, et cetera. And, uh, but then again, we, we encourage people to explore wherever along that uh, continuum they can find people who want to join up and do it. Uh, you know, at the, at, as I say, the, the one project I might call the residential subdivision plus plus. Uh, everyone would own or rent their own individual property or apartment on the project, but they would also be a uh, mandatory uh, 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 community-supported agriculture component, uh, and there would be a fair amount of shared infrastructure like, uh, you know, office rooms, et cetera, that the people in the community could use. And then, you know, on the other farthest extreme, one of the projects is a classic full-on community, uh, intentional community where anyone who joins would also become an, essentially an employee uh, of the group, uh, you know, employee-owned uh, cooperative, essentially. Uh, and everyone would be in it together in both their their living life, their working life, and would be uh, substantially pooling their economics. So, uh, there's lots of room to explore, and I suspect that we'll find that there's more than one formula that works. We'll probably also find some formulas that don't work, but uh, uh, you know, I think that's uh, that's what where, where I see the the first phase is exploration. Then the next phase is we start to see things that do work and then start to become replicated. Uh, you mentioned Crocus Raven. You know, I kind of laid out half facetiously <laughs> in my document uh, that one could think of uh, proto bees kind of operating at two levels. One is the constitutional level. So we have a constitution. We'll call this one Crocus, right? Which is how we're going to operate a proto B. And then we have an actual on the ground instantiation. Let's call it Raven that uses the Crocus constitution. Uh, now over time, if the Crocus constitution turns out to be one that seems to work, those group of people and other groups of people may take the Crocus constitution and uh, propagate many of them. There might be dozens of them, hundreds of them eventually of in the Crocus uh, line of lineage of proto-bees. While there might be uh, another lineage that uses a different constitution, different set of social operating system dynamics, and it may also be successful. It could be hundreds of those. Uh, and then the very interesting thing is how do uh, both the lineages operate with, within themselves? For instance, uh, Jordan Hall is working on a concept called Sibium, uh, which is a specific variety of proto-B, which uh, sees uh, many on-the-ground instances 
of, of the civium, all uh, nonetheless being unified in a essentially uh, business container so that all the everyone who lives in all the proto bees would belong would be employees of employee owners of uh, the civium enterprise in which uh, which would then do work in game a as we talk about parasitizing game a by doing it better from using game b methods and also of course working for the uh, the good of the people in uh, the game b world famously one of the ideas i push a lot is that child care should be a built-in service in uh, the proto bees that I like, at least, and so some percentage of people will be involved in uh, in childcare. Some people will be involved in education. Uh, might may involve communal food preparation. Uh, could well be gardening and uh, you know and uh, and and farming, etc., as part of the civium. Uh, so civium is one particular flavor of proto bee where we where we would expect each of the settlements to be strongly integrated uh, in a. Uh, cooperative uh, business wrapper, essentially. So uh, lots of uh, ideas going on. And uh, the time is about soon uh, when we will put these to the test and see which, if any of them, actually work. When I think about the proto bees and, you know, in the back of my head, I always call them beehives. Uh, one of the questions I ask myself is, how is this similar or different from the history of communes, ashrams, alternative living projects? You know, and there's some obvious differences, which is they're united under a shared vision. They're learning from each other's experimental successes and failures. And there's an emphasis on network thinking, which probably wasn't present in a lot of those early attempts. But what's your take on that? How do you see this as similar to or different from the history of communal alternative living experiments? Uh, I think it's on a continuum with them, but as I just went through, our idea is much more pluralistic. Uh, you know, so I, I would expect some of them to look a fair amount like, uh, you know, a 19th century uh, communal living experiment where everybody lives together and, uh, you know, manages themselves by a consensus process, eats together, et cetera, works together, et cetera. Uh, while at the other extreme, some of them, as I mentioned, would be more like residential real estate uh, development plus plus with uh, some aspects of game B that's built in. And uh, the fact that we're not doctrinaire, we don't believe we have the Bible on how to do it, I think is one of the things that differentiates us the most. Because uh, in the reading I've done, it's amazing how doctrinaire most of these uh, other projects were. We have the truth, God damn it, right? Uh, and we're taking a much more empirical, experimental uh, approach to this thing. I think that's one, uh, one big difference. The other, and I think this is, uh, it's not true for, for all these. For instance, the Israeli kibbutz was very good at this. Uh, we intend to aggressively offer services and products to game A, as we call it, uh, parasitizing game A by outcompeting them. And I think that's, again, something that was relatively rare in the traditional intentional community uh, vibe. Uh, you know, you know I, I don't see most of the proto-bees being... Uh, you know, hippies trying to figure out how little work they can do so they can smoke, spend their whole day smoking reefer, right? I expect a lot of proto-bees will be relatively tightly wound and, uh, you know, will be quite productive and will literally be out competing the uh, game A alternatives in the categories they choose to compete in. It reminds me a little bit of some of the uh, medieval monastery systems where they're producing the best beer or the best honey and selling it to the communities. I think there's been a problem with a lot of, uh, let's say, meta-level communities where their monetary idea was to just 
uh, tithe the people who are interested in the ideas, right? Charge them for access to these exciting new ideas rather than do something like the monasteries did, which is have communities produce something that can outcompete the local game A system and use that to fund people who are interested in these new ideas. And I'm strongly of that variety. Now, I do expect and at least one of the Proto-B uh, projects is talking about having affiliate members who, you know, supporting members who aren't actually on the ground, but, you know, or pay $100 a month to have uh, access to some of the ideas and come visit and that kind of stuff. Uh, but I don't believe that's how you build to scale right? Uh, that's essentially lifestyle tourism. And in some places it'll help. And, and I expect at the margin, at least, uh, it'll be part of many of the early protobies where, uh, you know, let's say, for instance, you're building out uh, 50 housing units, you might uh, keep three or four of them to be uh, Airbnbs, essentially. Uh, it has two benefits. One, it's nice cash flow. And second, it exposes people to the experience. Uh, but I, at least for uh, any project I personally got strongly involved with, I would not want that kind of stuff to be the main uh, basis of economic life. I believe that the economic life has for Proto B to prove that it's viable uh, has to be uh, making real products, real services and making them better uh, than the game A alternative so that people will buy them. So what's your guess about initially where people with game B type consciousness and game B type social organizations are likely to be able to outcompete game A. I think that uh, some of the ones we've identified, in fact, I've got a document online, which I haven't published yet that I've been working on for a while that lays out some of them. Uh, but I think that uh, anything where self-organization is a uh, good idea or an important part of the, of the work. One of the ones I've used as uh, two examples or two extremes actually in types of industry. Uh, one is an ad agency, right? Wait a minute, what could possibly be more game A than an ad agency, right? Try to manipulate people to uh, buy shit to increase their status. Well, you know, there's, there's a big industry there uh, and it's a talent driven industry. Uh, and unfortunately, it's a talent-driven in, uh, industry in a very exploitive fashion, where the partners take all you know take all the profit. Uh, they bring people in at very low wages, burn them out. Uh, they become very cynical, etc. And uh, it strikes me that a employee-owned ad agency uh, could actually pretty be pretty damn uh, cool in the game B world. Now we'd of course have some ethical. Uh, considerations about the type of uh, customers we take in, et cetera. But I think we could get some of the very best and brightest writers and artists and uh, conceptualizers uh, to work for a game B ad agency. And the other extreme, I've uh, frequently talked about an auto repair business as a good example where game B can outcompete game, game A. Uh, you know, as many of us know, uh, while there are some good ones, and I know a few, the auto repair industry is rife with ripoff artists, you know, people that, uh, you know, sell, you know, unsuspecting grannies uh, services they don't need. They give you parts that they claim are the original factory parts, but are, are actually cheap uh, knockoffs. Uh, you know, they charge you book rate, which may or may not correspond at all to the number of hours that were actually spent uh, working and having uh, worked in the auto industry a little bit first out of college, uh, there's all kinds of conflicts of interests uh, internally between the parts department and the mechanics. You know, the parts department are always trying to push on the mechanics, buy as many parts as possible. Uh, the mechanics are uh, saying, no, I'd rather spend time trying to fix 
uh, you know, the car rather than having to just slap on parts. And unfortunately, the ethos these days is, has kind of gotten to the just slap on parts till you find something that works. Uh, I could see an employee owned where nobody has any incentive to uh, sell parts versus labor uh, and to work out what's the honorable and ethical thing to do for the customer to provide the most value. And if we're able to do that and then franchise it so that Proto Bees all over the country and eventually all over the world uh, offer as one of their businesses, Game B Auto Repair, and the Game B brand stands for honest, high quality work that's not distorted by game A game playing, I could see that being hugely successful. That uh, sort of internal contradiction between the parts people and the mechanics makes me think of the relationship between doctors and uh, pharmaceutical corporations. Uh, you know, where one person's trying to uh, urge a substance as a solution and the other person's trying to do an analysis and repair job. Yep, very they similar. I wonder whether, uh, you know, medicine is an area, healing, that kind of thing is an area where Game B could exceed due to its ability to take uh, more comprehensive viewpoints and have more collaborative relationships between different kinds of modalities, things like that. And also, like you were saying about the auto body shop, that emergent reputation for high integrity. And a, I think maybe um, healthcare could be an area, you know, given whatever the rules about healthcare are in any given system. Yeah. That's the problem. Of course, highly regulated. That's, that's interesting. I'll add it to my list. Uh, you know, some of the other ones I have on my list are, uh, again, you know, ripping on the auto business. How about a Game B used car business, right? Another one famous for its scurviness, right? Uh, but I suppose you were honorable and ethical and gave a year warranty and, you know, uh, full disclosure and all that good stuff. Uh, another one, a healthy fast food chain, right? Uh, again, sounds almost uh, oxymoronic, but I think it could be done. Uh, is, this, wait a minute, is all of game B just a way for Jim Rutt to get back at that auto body shop he worked at? <laughs> actually, I, I had a good time at that place. I liked it. Uh, but anyway, another one I think actually very high up. And I think uh, if I were to pick one that I was going to push on a uh, an Upwork uh, game B, Upwork is an online uh, matching service for uh, contractors and employers. And it's... Uh, a little bit dodgy and uh, a little bit exploitive. Uh, you know, they take a pretty big cut out of the paychecks uh, of the people. <clears throat> I could see one that was owned by guilds, right? So you have, you know, you'd have the Python program or guild. You had the PR uh, guild. You'd have the, you know, uh, ghostwriter guild, etc. And they would establish some standards and some uh, prevailing rates uh, for the people within their guilds. And then the guilds would collectively own the platform uh, that was essentially a, uh, you know, gig economy uh, matching service for employers and freelancers. I think that would be a great Game B project. And again, uh, honorable, ethical, transparent, uh, employee-owned, uh, all the hallmarks uh, of Game B. Uh, I think there's a there's room for a Game B book publishing company. Let's see, elder care. There's a, another uh, industry that's full of uh, exploitive stuff going on. Uh, child care. Uh, oh, oh, here here's another one of my favorites. A Game B phone. Uh, you know, our telephones are so addicting for us. Uh, you can actually do private label phones relatively easily. And I'd love to put on a a, a infrastructure on a phone that basically 
requires you to appoint your own personal board of directors that has to approve any additional apps on your phone. <laughs> and uh, was inexpensive, uh, but fully functional uh, and, uh, you know, and was supportive of your developing your better self, improving your sovereignty, not subversive, subvertive, uh, of it. So I, I got a long list. I got uh, 25 in my list and I've added healthcare and I'm sure there'll be lots of others that, uh, that people will bring, uh, bring to it. But, you know, things where people working together, uh, in good faith can do a better job uh, with employee ownership and with a brand equity around transparency, uh, quality and uh, honesty. Uh, I think those are the kinds of places where we could explore. And, you know, again, yeah, these things are, are not hippy dippy. This is real stuff, right? <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about the ability to see into network structures because network thinking is one of the pillars of the Game B approach. It's one of the things that might distinguish Game B's from 19th century social experiments. It's also like in your own education, you were saying your readings and, you know, uh, autodidactic kind of educational development. But obviously you started to um, uh, tune yourself into the emerging field of complexity and network thinking. And obvious networks have organized the universe for a long time, but it's pretty recent that they started to enter human consciousness or human social systems that they became something that we were aware of thinking about. Right, that we used to think about the mushrooms, and now we think about the mycelium, so to speak. Ah, I love that great right? analogy. Uh, so, but still, there's a lot of people, our fellow citizens, who have a real difficult time seeing into that, and their responses to politics and economics are based on a pre-network understanding of the world. So, how do we cross that divide? What, what you know, what are the uh, what are the key insights or experiences that? pre-B people or B adjacent people or any of our fellow citizens need in order to start taking networks more seriously? Yeah, a uh, great question. And uh, I think it's uh, it's one of the things people could, could start doing right away. Well, the first thing to understand uh, in terms of what you could do starting tomorrow is that the current forms of the networks that many of us deal with are very addicting and are detrimental in many ways to our mental health and to the information commons. And some of the little things I do is uh, I take Sunday off, right? No interactivity at all on Sundays. I, uh, the only thing I allow is uh, a Kindle, but I don't allow myself to buy a new book on my Kindle, right? Uh, so no phones, no computers, no pads uh, every Sunday. Uh, I also am fairly well known for taking six months a year off of social media every year from 1st of July to the 1st of January. No Facebook, no Twitter no well, uh, none of the other, uh, occasionally I'll, I'll look around in some new fresh systems just to see what's going on. Uh, but don't get oneself habituated to living on them damn things where it's your only source. So that's the avoidance side. I mean, just start realizing these things are like cigarettes, right? Uh, these things are like alcohol. Uh, you know, my father gave us a bunch of good rules to live by on alcohol. He came from a family where half the males were alcoholics. Fortunately, he was not one of them. Uh, but he, you know, he uh, coached us from a very earlier age, uh, how to think about alcohol, never drink to offset a hangover, you know, never drink before noon. It's amazing. In my whole life, I probably had a drink before noon five times, you know, so I'm not one to have mimosas at brunch. It's just, hey, Herbie said that wasn't right. So I don't do it. Uh, we should develop, I think, similar kinds of uh, prophylactic behavioral 
rules with respect to the current toxic variety of networking that we have. Now, on the more positive side, uh, we need to build networks uh, that aren't designed to hijack uh, our attention, that aren't designed to press our dopamine buttons, et cetera. And I would, uh, you know, put forth that the Game B Home is an example of that. It's uh, uh, it doesn't have that toxicity to it. And I, th- I expect that we'll be building lots more of such things. You know, for instance, uh, Proto-B will no doubt have its own uh, local network for people to do their governance on, to find out what's happening, and just, of course, to organize social events and things of that sort. Uh, and, and then we start thinking about the relationships between Proto-Bs and the relationships between pre-bee people and the proto-bees, and we could see a whole series of networks uh, that need to be built uh, to allow high-quality uh, interaction in a, in a you know, uh, pro-developmental uh, fashion. So, uh, you know, like that's, that's, some, that's some of my take on it. And then uh, to your other uh, point, part of it's educational. You know, we certainly need to uh, start educating kids from a young age that we live in a network world. I mean, you know, one of the, you know, the, the foundational perspectives of Game B are that it's, uh, you know, self-organizing, decentralized, uh, network-centric, and metastable. And we need to explain all those things uh, to young folks, in particular, the network centricity that, you know, tr- uh, networks are a new thing and they allow us to get su- super linear, linear scaling from smaller units. If we're right, uh, particularly if Jordan Hall is right with a Civium idea, uh, we can get the uh, super linear development of good things that come from big cities like more patents, uh, uh, you know, uh, more books being published, et cetera, and not have all the negative things that come with big cities. If we're able to have our small, high quality of life proto-bees be strongly interconnected with each other in a way that we can capture uh, the synergies of large numbers of people working together on projects and yet still live in beautiful, smaller communities. Terrific. Um, well, I just want to throw this out there. If people listening want to start working on Canadian proto-bees, especially ones where I run a whiskey distillery, contact me. <laughs> we'll start working it out. Ah, yeah, that's, that's not a bad business. You know, I think breweries for sure. Uh, whiskey businesses are uh, heavily regulated. Whiskey is a terrible business uh, for a startup because you got to age a damn shit, right? Uh, if you're going to get into the distillery business, you probably want to get into start with gin, right? <laughs> Something like that. I think there's a hundred uh, uh, bespoke gin distilleries in London now. I think that's a better business, actually. Actually, my girlfriend's always wanted to start a gin distillery. We live in Thunder Bay, and there's a lot of amethyst in the ground. So she wants to start one where you just put a piece of amethyst in each gin bottle, and then that's the thing. <laughs> Game A will go for that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's kind of cool, right? You know, the uh, the uh, who are the guys that put the worm in the bottle, right? Uh, mezcal, right? Uh, so you, you have a gimmick. I love it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there are, you know, one of our uh, Proto B projects is in Canada. It's in uh, uh, British Columbia, and they're honing in on property right now. And uh, so, hey, if you're willing to move from Thunder Bay eh, to uh, BC, you know, there, there may be a. Hope, I grew up in BC. I just moved to Thunder Bay a couple of years ago. So I'm uh-huh. a BC boy. Ah, okay. Yeah. You don't sound like a Thunder Bayan. Right? <laughs> Uh, so in the meantime, before the distilleries get set up and all the land gets purchased, you could give us a synopsis of what what maybe the early bee epoch looks like if the proto-bees work, if the experiments pay off, if we can exchange information about what works. Um, where does it end up? 
what does civilization look like as it starts to turn onto a B mode? Yeah, imagine, okay, this is really interesting. This, of course, this is more speculative, right? We're compounding speculation on speculation. And I always want to remind people that uh, a game B value is epistemic uh, humility or modesty. Uh, that, uh, as Yogi Bear said, uh, you know, predicting predictions are hard, particularly about the future, right? And uh, more so about complex adaptive systems than about, uh, you know, linear uh, kinds of things. Uh, and so this is speculative, but let's imagine uh, a region, uh, and I'll just imagine for fun, the uh, Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, which I live fairly close to, beautiful land, quite rich, there's a number of small cities there, good place to live. Uh, let's suppose in 25 years, 25% of the population are living on proto-bees, you know, uh, either out in the rural areas or in 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 the city, because there's also uh, people thinking about how to do proto bees in cities, and the reason you can't. And it's now uh, a significant voting block, frankly. Uh, you know, 25% swing votes enough to you know put any uh, any politician you want into office. So they have to start to provide things that we want. For instance, Virginia does not have good charter school rules. Uh, but I could see uh, as we get to the early B epoch being a strong enough force to be able to have really nice charter school regulations. I also like to see uh, us apply our, uh, our clout uh, to things like uh, building codes, right? Um, and of course, we'll be doing that from the very beginning. Turns out that's the hardest part of uh, getting a, a proto B launched is the land use regulation and building code stuff uh, where, you know, it's not because they're maliciously trying to suppress proto-bees. It's just because they're old-fashioned, right? And you have to go through a whole exceptions process and all this. So over time, I see more and more of that uh, going away. And so it becomes real easy to start a proto-bee. It's no longer a nightmare of dealing with the planning board and the health department and the building inspector. Uh, they know what we're up to. They, they're supportive of it. Uh, we've helped elect politicians that appoint them. Uh, and so the world is now moving towards the uh, proto-Bs and game B just being easier and easier. Further, uh, and this is key, and again, it's speculative. Uh, one of the hypotheses is that we will indeed learn how to build these uh, game B ventures that are employee-owned and self-managing that can outcompete game A. Uh, and if that is indeed the case, uh, then the, the, the growth of proto-Bs and early B will be exponential as we just outcompete game A in industry after industry. And young people coming out of college say, do I want to work for a top-down uh, command and control organization where my boss is an asshole and they get all the profit? Why the hell would I do that when I can go to work for a better company where I'm a, an employee owner uh, and where I live in a community where I have a wonderful uh, way of life and where I'm not being programmed and forced into competing uh, for status with material possessions? Uh, why would I do that, right? And once you see that tipping point occur, uh, that's when we start to move you know, into the strongly into the early B world and we're on our way to full-on game B. Uh, and I'm, I'm excited about it. Hopefully I'll live that long. Who knows, right? <laughs> I'm excited about it too. And I hope you're around for it. Um, you know, I know you just had a nice conversation with Zach Stein about hierarchical complexity. And so I know you're familiar with, you know, concepts of like stratified and folded levels of complexity. Uh, and 
a number of people like John Gebser and Ken Wilbur and the Spiral Dynamics people draw a social, anthropological, historical analogy to those kind of Piagetian cognitive developmental phases so that they look back on the normal history of game A and they subdivide it into, you know, you got your tribal, you got your ethnocentric, you got your modernist. So there's, what's your take on that? Do you think it's valuable to subdivide game A into layers of different modified operating systems? They have a lot in common, but they also have some real differences. Or do you think it's more useful to think of game A as a sort of homogenous block? I would say neither, actually. Uh, I see game A as having evolved, like everything else, along many different dimensions in many different ways. And and while these gross blockings into pre-modern, modern, post-modern, meta-modern, or whatever the hell you want to do, are vaguely useful, uh, I don't think they tell us a hell of a lot. Uh, I'd rather look at the evolution of specific things, you know, like uh, let's look at the evolution of monetary systems and finance. Let's look at the, uh, the evolution of the game of science. Uh, let's look at the evolution of uh, technology and manufacturing. Let's look at the evolution of energy, its production and transmission and consumption. Uh, and that those things are probably much more useful than this, uh, you know, gross uh, chunking of, you know, they don't hurt. You know, they, they're sort of true, right? Uh, but they're not very, uh, uh, to my mind, useful, actually. Uh, what I find more useful in these toolkits is the integral folks have this four quadrant model. And you know, I'm only, I'm brand new to reading the integralists. I've read uh, one book on it called The Brief History of Anything, Everything by Ken Wilber. And Ken's going to come on my podcast one day, uh, his health <laughs> allowing, but uh, it's not allowed it for a while. Well, some of this stuff, as you can imagine, I find metaphysical rubbish that I'm not too interested in. Uh, <laughs> the uh, four quadrant model I actually now use. I find that a, a useful tool. Uh, the other one I find useful is uh, Hansi Freinach's uh, political metamodernism and his distinctions around uh code, hierarchical complexity, state, and depth. Uh, and again, uh, it's a lens, and I find that useful uh, for thinking about a lot of things in our game B space. Uh, but what I don't do is turn any of them, I don't reify any of them. I don't say these are reality. I say these are lenses. And are they useful? Use them. And it, when they're not useful, don't. But don't, uh, at least personally, I tend not to take these systems and swallow the pill. Uh, rather, I look at them as uh, a set of techniques and viewpoints which either are useful or are not useful or are useful in part and not useful in other part. For instance, the integralist, I got no use at all for their uh, cosmic consciousness. Sounds like total nonsense to me, right? I pull my metaphysical pistol out. Uh, and uh, on the other hand, I find the four quadrant model very useful. The, the levels model a bit less useful, but somewhat. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, look, look at the tools and pick and choose. Uh, and build a, make sense of the world that we're embedded in uh, with uh, various tools and, and where necessary, invent your own. Yeah, there's definitely um, a danger in over-reifying the abstractions that emerge from saying general analogies between interpretations. You know, the four-quadrant model is pretty useful on some things. Jean Verveke has a four ways of knowing pattern, and they map pretty closely 
to the integral four quadrants. When you can see that and go, oh, that means that's part of the underlying nature of reality. Now, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it's not very important to think that it is. <laughs> exactly. I don't think, I probably, I think it is not, right? You know, the, the, uh, the, one of the easiest uh, errors for people to fall into is to mistake the map for the territory. Uh, you know, the, the territory of existence is remarkably fine-grained and unbelievably complex. And our lenses are, are coarse grainings and simplifications to allow our fairly stupid selves to be able to make uh, operational decisions on how to live in the universe. And we have to keep, always keep that in mind. These are simplifications because we're dumb. Uh, if we were a lot smarter, we, our, uh, our lenses could have finer granularity instead of four quadrants, we could have 256 quadrants, right? But we're too stupid to think about what the hell you do with 256 quadrants. Uh, but an AI might not be. Or the people from Alpha Centauri, who knows? If right? most of the patterns in existence roll out to something like infinite complexity. <laughs> exactly. They are. I mean, all we can do is use these little geometric variables that we're familiar and comfortable with now. And we've got to judge them not by how much they impress us, but by how much leverage they give us over outcomes. Yeah. The word I use, anyone who listens to my podcast knows, useful, right? Uh, that is my lodestar, is X useful. Uh, if it's not useful, fuck it. I don't care what it's uh, heritage or uh, what authorities say it's wonderful. If it is useful, use it. I don't care who invented it, right? Uh, you know, whether it's politically correct or not. Uh, if it's useful in living in the world uh, and helping us make decisions, because, you know, what is it that an animal is, right? It's, it's someone who has perception, uh, who has memory, of two kinds. One is memory based on experience and perception. And the second is essentially genetic memory, which has uh, been programmed in over 500 million years of evolution. And what is the purpose of uh, perception, memory, and cognition is making decisions in the world. Uh, and, you know, useful then is the lens you say, what which parts of that puzzle help me make better decisions in the world? And, uh, and that's all I have to say about this stuff, right? You know, don't believe, you know, you know, you know, as you say, I don't believe it. It's, you know, it's fundamental to the reality that there's exactly four ways to look at shit, right? I say, well, that's more likely it's uh, human uh, cognition is limited to the famous Miller uh, seven plus or minus two working memory limitation. And we actually have a, wor a, a working memory limitation of four for images. Uh, and so things in the range of four to seven uh, are due to the fact that we're basically to the first order, the stupidest possible general intelligence uh, and are not attributes of the universe themselves. Okay. Well, um, Human intelligence, the artificial intelligence we might need to make sense of more complex patterns than we're capable of perceiving. Uh, but another form of intelligence that fascinates me is collective intelligence. Uh, I gave a talk a few years ago where I even argued that quantum mechanical systems could be understood as a basic layer of collective intelligence, because in most interpretations, you need to calculate all the other things the electron might be doing in order to figure out where this electron is likely to be, which makes it sound like there's a socially distributed intelligence in that system about this particular electron. Uh, so 
you can interpret the universe as being built up in layers of collective intelligence. You could even imagine them at simple physical layers. Certainly they're in biological layers. We've got swarms, we've got dominance hierarchies, we've got our tribes and nations and our contemporary quasi-democracies. I'm curious about, based on the ideas you've played with, what what do you think is limiting our democracy at the moment? What are the basic bugs in the electoral software that make it less useful than it could be? Uh, they are many. Uh, and of course, keep in mind that our constitutions uh, were designed in the 18th century, mostly in the, in the British case, the 17th century. Uh, and so it's no surprise that our institutions are you know, out of congruence with the, the nature and the shape of the problems uh, that we have today. You know, uh, one of my pet hobby horses is something called liquid democracy. I've written about it a fair amount. Some uh, of my essays, the introduction, an introduction to liquid democracy on Medium has gotten a lot of readership, somewhat to my surprise. So if people are interested in that alternative, it's worth looking at. Uh, and in liquid democracy, uh, you, we get rid of elected officials. Essentially, every person is uh, their own potential legislator, though we are realistic and realize most people don't have the interest, the aptitude, the time, or the knowledge to actually be an effective legislator. So you can then proxy your vote on any of, let's say, 30 or 40 issue areas to somebody else. So you know, maybe you uh, proxy your education vote to your third grade teacher who was the best teacher you ever had, right? Uh, and maybe she reproxies it to uh, uh, you know, a group of uh, high quality educators, right? And so the proxies can flow down or you proxy your defense vote to your uncle's retired Air Force colonel or maybe to the uh, to your Quaker minister, uh, who would be a, a different and interesting choice for your defense vote. And uh, this way, there are no elections, uh, and essentially the way the proxies uh, flow uh, is how the legislation eventually gets done. Uh, and the beauty of it is it no longer forces you to a bad bargain of bundle A or bundle B, uh, you know, of which you may well disagree with a lot of stuff in either bundle. I know I certainly do. When I look at, uh, you know, the shit show of America's team red and team blue uh, politics, I go, Blah, you know, uh, I'll pick one of them, the, uh, but it's definitely lesser of two evils. And it's certainly they don't represent who I am, uh, while liquid democracy could exactly represent who I am. You know, if I happen to, you know, have a, you know, kind of idiosyncratic uh, collection of uh, what I think is true or interesting or important, uh, I can model that almost direct, almost exactly, uh, you know, give my, uh, uh, environmental vote to the Sierra Club, give my gun control vote to the NRA, right? You know, neither party would uh, represent that, uh, that combination, but under liquid democracy, uh, you could get there. On the other hand, as we talked about earlier, epistemic uh, humility or modesty, in all my writings about liquid democracy, I say, don't try it at the nation state level first. Uh, it sounds like a good idea, goddammit. Uh, but there may be some really unintended consequences. So I've uh, been encouraging people to try it at the city level or the organization level, try it at your local rotary club uh, and we'll see. Uh, but that's just you know one example of how we could massively update our social operating system. Forrest Landry has some clever ideas also on how to do governance for smaller groups, you know, say at the level of a proto B and uh, some of his, uh, his writings on uh, uh, Group management are very interesting and, and worth people uh, 
looking into. I could send you a link if you. I don't know if you guys have an episode page. You can put it on your episode page. Uh, but uh, there's, I think, there's a whole, tremendous amount of thinking that needs to be done uh, to upgrade governance at every level. Uh, you know, uh, nation state governance. Corporate governance, you know, things like holacracy may be a much better way to uh, run a company than command and control top-down, uh, employee ownership uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, anonymous uh, stockholder ownership. Just so many different improvements that we can potentially make in governance. Fabulous. I would recommend that anybody who's interested in the future of collective intelligence, uh, check out those articles on liquid democracy and try to wrestle with the concept because there's some really interesting approaches in there. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, one of the first thoughts I ever had about enhanced democracy was just sort of stratified direct democracy where everybody gets their vote. But if you can prove you actually know anything about the voting question, then maybe your vote counts as five or ten. And maybe, you know, the elected representatives, their vote counts as 100,000 or the president has the largest voting block, but everybody's in the same vote every time when they want to be. But the thing liquid democracy does that goes beyond something like that is it allows people to proxy out their vote, which is hugely important because most people don't want to spend most of their time focusing on this stuff. They want to make qualitative evaluations of other people and to be able to pass that on and be able to treat yourself not as a single voter, but as essentially a dynamic plurality of subvotes. I think that definitely raises the level of the collective intelligence. Yeah, I think and, and, and people say, well, some of them will give them to dumb people. Go, yeah, they will, but probably people less dumb than themselves. That's right. So, uh, and that's already happening. I mean, yeah. dumb people are doing dumb things right now. That's not yeah. a danger of future systems. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, maybe my uncle isn't quite the optimal guy to give my defense vote to, but he probably knows more about it than I do. So, as I uh, suggest, uh, even if the gradient towards greater knowledge and expertise is not so steep, it's probably in general up. And so we should expect better collective decision-making from liquid democracy than our current uh, than our current system. And of course, it would be great not to have the airwaves full of noise uh, from Team A and Team Red and Team Blue, uh, you know, every two years. Uh, you guys in Canada have a somewhat different cycle, but uh, and not quite as bad a shit show, but, uh, uh, you know, why the hell do we need all that noise that's reduced to nothing? It's basically propagandistic uh, techniques, uh, you know, no real talk about substance. Uh, liquid democracy uh, gets rid of all that. It's a, at least conceptually a very interesting system. And of course, more broadly, uh, sense-making, collective sense-making uh, doesn't isn't just about uh, electoral replacing electoral politics. As I alluded to before, uh, a classic collective decision-making opportunity is in how we run businesses and how we run our local communities. Uh, the governance layer uh, applies everywhere, uh, you know, because essentially, um, you know, we have operating systems every place, you know, our private organizations, our churches, uh, our companies, they all have social operating systems and all those things can use a rethink. Yeah, that seems to be one of the benefits of thinking in terms of networks is you stop putting things like business and government in different categories and just start thinking of them as social operating systems at different scales. Yeah, they're coordination systems to to do social work, right? Uh, work uh, in, you know, say a, a business takes in raw material and creates a product, right? That somebody wants and distributes it at a price people are willing to pay uh, or provides a service, et cetera. Uh, government uh, aggregates 
some balance of things that people want from their government versus what they're willing to pay for. So they're, again, they're social coordination systems to address different classes of problems. But, uh, but at the higher level of abstraction, they're all the same thing, right? Different flavors of the same thing. And that's a very important insight. That's a key insight from, as you say, uh, taking a network centric view of uh, social operating systems. Uh, you mentioned Landry's attempts to think through the way people organize themselves. And I know he's tried to map his uh, trifecta structure onto meritocracy, consensus, and democracy by having them work together in different phases of community self-organization. Uh, I haven't, at least, read a lot of thinking from him about the actual voting mechanisms. And I'm curious if you have thoughts about how the vote is done. There's plurality, there's majority, there's winner take all, there's ranked choice, there's proportional representation, there's, you know, we could average out results if we have people vote differently, right? Yeah. So do you have a sense of what's potentially a smarter way to actually do votes in the democratic phase of our social organization? Well, it's interesting that uh, there's a mathematical proof that uh, no voting system is the best. Uh, <laughs> I forgot the mathematician, a guy named uh, Don Sari at Berkeley uh, is an expert. Don Sari, S-A, anyway, I can give you his name, is a mathematician of voting systems and uh, is up on all that stuff. Personally, uh, I like rank choice. Uh, I think ranked choice is a very interesting uh, system. You can prove it's not perfect and there can be uh, uh, results that are uh, irrational, uh, but not nearly as bad as our one vote first uh, uh, past the post. And for people who don't know about how ranked choice works uh, is let's say uh, you have two people running or you have uh, four people running for mayor and you can vote for one or all four of them and you rank your choices. One, two, three, and four, say I vote for all, four of them ranked or typically three. Usually you don't vote for ones. You don't really, you know, the last one you don't want, but let's say you vote for three. Uh, the first round is uh, everybody's first choice vote is calculated. And then the candidate with the least number of votes in the first round gets dropped. And everybody that voted for them, number one, the pointer goes down to their number two choice. And then those votes, votes are uh, allocated and the lowest uh, candidate um, drops off. And then you have two and then this person's next level of votes are reallocated. And then that that point will tell you who wins. Now, actually, we used that system uh, when, at, when I was in college uh, at MIT for all of our student elections. Uh, and we just thought that was the coolest. And the city of Cambridge, where MIT is located, adopted it for their municipal elections. Uh, so it's actually been tried, uh, and I think it's being adopted uh, in some states now. Uh, I believe the state of Maine has recently uh, gone to rank, rank choice voting for statewide offices. And I believe it's uh, a, while not perfect, a certainly a big improvement over pick one uh, uh, type democratic machinery. You've got a, a neat article on Medium about the fifth attractor based on this idea that our perturbed and unstable uh, combination of social forces could settle down at some point into a place that isn't necessarily feudalism, fascism, or a new dark age. The idea of attractors is interesting. It's a little bit uh, ambiguous because obviously it's a, it has a good scientific description 
It has a sort of geometric slope of probabilities angle, but it certainly feels like um, an already existing future that haunts us and pulls us toward it. So let's, let's talk about telos and teleology a little bit. It's certainly um, pretty preposterous to think that a force from outside the cosmos enters into the cosmos and has a goal that is both um, real and intelligible to us so that we should act on. <laughs> but at the same time, we can look at the evolution of the cosmos and say that the mechanisms of mutation and adaptation and culling periodically produce a, a new emergent regime. And this has happened a bunch of times. And it sort of looks like there's a trend to all that. <laughs> and that maybe, maybe there are trends built into the probabilities of the universe just because of the combinations of basic parameters of reality will steer things in a certain direction over time. Right. And that's that's at least a not initially stupid understanding of what a telos might be. Um, what's your take on that? Is there um, is there an intelligible potential directionality of deep history or is that mostly a form of regressive thinking? Well, I think you have to break this down uh, into more specific things. One trend that many people believe the universe shows is an increase in complexity over time. Uh, and there's some reasonably good arguments uh, to say that we should expect that at least for a while, uh, you know, in uh, 10 trillion years when all the stars burn out, maybe we'll have a reversal of complexity, but as long as the stars continue to uh, provide a flux of energy, uh, there's probable reasonable uh, reason to believe that uh, over the long haul complexity uh, ought to increase. On the other hand, uh, all this stuff has to be thought in the in the in the context of evolution, essentially. And evolution doesn't always move forward. Uh, you know, there can be regressions for sure, either exogenous uh, regressions. Think about the asteroid that hit the Earth 65 million years ago and wiped out the dominant life form, which was dinosaurs. Uh, now, of course, their ancestors survive as birds, but they're not the big old thunder lords that we had before. Uh, and uh, even there's no even, uh, even without catastrophe, there's no guarantee that... Uh, that forward is the direction of evolution in any given case. In fact, it's interesting, Homo sapiens, us, <coughs> uh, advanced modern Homo sapiens have 10% smaller brains than Cro-Magnon man did about 30,000 years ago. Uh, it may be that our soft living since the invention of ag agriculture uh, has allowed us to be somewhat stupider than we were. And uh, of course, some of the uh, current social, political, and cultural trends tend to reinforce that view. Uh, so is there a, personally, I don't believe there's some, you know, from somebody from the outside coming in, playing all the strings and playing us marionettes at all. Uh, uh, however, as an empiricist, give me some proof, God damn it, and I'll take a look at it. Uh, but I do think that uh, there's a reasonable argument for a on average, increase in complexity over time, so long as there's a net big energy flux. Uh, but we can't count on it uh, saving our ass in any given case. Uh, every evolutionary branch can regress or move in directions uh, that are surprising. For instance, the um, whales uh, are evolved from similar lines to cattle. Uh, who would have thought of that? But, you know, that's how our evolution took, uh, you know, the 
ancestors of cattle, some of them ended up going back to the sea. Uh, what a strange thing. Was that, is that a movement forward, backward, sideways? You know, I would say that the idea, are they higher complexity, lower complexity? I don't know. They're just different. Uh, and so uh, this increase in complexity is over, you know, longer periods of time. And we can't count on it in saving our effort to save our ass. We have yeah. to do that ourselves. We don't know. <laughs> Obviously, there's local regressions. We also don't know if any of the apparently progressive trend lines are actually very local and will go back in another direction. And we certainly shouldn't think very simplistically about the notion of forward when it comes to evolution. <laughs> no, again, on a more hopeful scale, humans are the first species in our evolutionary tree uh, to get past the line of general intelligence. Uh, we are now in uh, a domain of cultural evolution, which is both uh, very fast uh, and very powerful. Uh, and that's both a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, it means that we can do miraculous stuff, uh, but it also means that we can destroy ourselves with a wrong move. So uh, I think that views about the unfolding of cultural evolution are ones that you know, we'll know a hell of a lot more in a few thousand years. <laughs> uh, but it's the game we're playing. And we got to be good at it. You know, uh, who is it? Stuart Brand said, we now have the power of gods. We better get good at it, right? And uh, well, that's, of course, uh, very close to the core of uh, the game B ethos uh, is that we are in a meta crisis. If we play this wrong, uh, we could, at worst case, kill off all life on Earth. Uh, more likely, we could cause the collapse of advanced civilization and a regression to, uh, you know, small bands, warlordism, etc. Uh, on the other hand, we have the power to not go there also if we're, uh, if we're smart enough not to do so. Are you going to take six months off each year from the Game B social networks? Ah, it's funny you mentioned. I was just thinking about that the other day, uh, and I don't know. Uh, the answer might well be yes. I have found it's also been very good for the Game B community for me to disappear for a while. Uh, it helps, uh, you know, a younger generation of voices uh, come up, you know, new people take on leadership and managerial responsibilities, et cetera. And so I think it's, you know, kind of good for the movement, actually, to have all of, many of us OGs disappear uh, and eventually the next generation uh, take on the work and, uh, disappearing six months a year. Uh, it's, yeah, I've been doing it for quite a while and uh, the world has not ended. <laughs> so <laughs> the answer is I haven't fully decided, but the if I were to decide right now, because I always would uh, uh, train my business people in my companies to always, if someone asked you, what would you decide right now? You better have an answer. Uh, even though you, you reserve the right to study further before you actually do it. I would take the six, I will, if I decide right now, I'd take the six months off. You are, uh, let's say, the poster boy for the anti-spirituality phrasing of the meta-level civilization and personal transformation. And I like that because I think we need a strong diversity of terminology. And there's, right, there's obvious dangers to spiritual phrasing is that it tends to invite soft-headed regressive thinking and also call into our communities an element of people we might not want. And cults. Uh, Watch out for the cults. Exactly. Now, there's uh, there's some superficial value to it in terms of like a sales technique, <laughs> reaching out to people, putting ourselves verbally in alignment with traditions and 
you know, an awful lot of the people in the world are already in that kind of phrasing. And even people within these communities grew up in a way that was very sympathetic to the esoteric and developmental aspects of religion. So we might, we might want to continue that as a way of creating alliances outside the group and affirming people inside the group, or we might want to take a harder line. And I think both of those attitudes are a really good mix. My own take is usually that I don't want to give up the battlefield before the fight, so to speak. If I think of people as, I don't want people I think of as idiots getting to define a term and then I reject the term. I want to say I get to define the term in the best possible way, according to me. And if they disagree, they're wrong about the meaning of the word. <laughs> so that 90% of what people call religion, I'm like, well, that's not religious. I'm like those old prophets. And I'm like, you guys are doing religion wrong. It should be this. <laughs> but that's a temperamental and uh, you know linguistic attitude that I have. And I, I appreciate the, uh, the disagreement and the complexity and the diversity of opinions on the subject in our communities. Yeah, and then I think in great game B, we go out of our way to have a big tent on that, right? I think that's one of the things we learned from the original game B 1.0 was that, you know, we think basically fell apart about that exact argument. Uh, and now we've uh, concluded, frankly, the way the Enlightenment did after the 30 years war, uh, that we need to be a big tent and tolerate each other's views on this stuff. And I also find some very interesting, innovative work like John Verveke's The Religion That's Not a Religion. Uh, and uh, Jordan Hall has participated in that, uh, Greg Henry Keys and some others, that we can take things that uh, have hooks into, uh, say, folkways that have been supported religion over the years and remap them into uh, more rational domains. And I think that's good work. It's not work that I'm temperamentally suited for, uh, but I encourage it. And, and indeed, under you know uh, what we call psychotechnologies, uh, even full-on traditional religions, uh, if they work for people, fine, right? And I think we need to be a big tent on this stuff. And uh, you know, if stuff's useful, then then use it. But I, uh, but personally, not for me. <laughs> uh, you know, if you got the proof, God damn it. Uh, you know, my local pastor, who I'm a good friends with, great, real smart lady. I actually had her on the podcast one time of the uh, Presbyterian Church. She said, Jim, what would it take for you to become a believer? And I said, all right, here, here it is, Beth. Uh, give me two weeks warning uh, when good old God will cause the Washington Monument uh, to rise 200 feet off its foundations uh, rotate three times and settle itself back down with no damage. Uh, and I'll whip up a crowd of uh, newspaper and TV and, uh, you know, witnesses and all this shit. And if he, and if it works, I'm a believer, God damn it. And she goes, you're an asshole. <laughs> he doesn't work that way. I go, well, you asked me what it would take for me to be a believer. Uh, and so there it was. Uh, so I, as an empiricist, I do not rule out the possibility that uh, uh, anything that's logically possible is logically possible, uh, but I, I just am temperamentally not interested in believing stuff without evidence. It's, it's interesting the way, to me, that some people connect belief, religion, and spirituality very tightly, and other people don't connect those very much at all. Like, I didn't grow up with any kind of religious indoctrination, so that's a pretty privileged position. I can stand back and have a very positive view of religion because it never did anything to me personally. 
And then when I got involved in the uh, integral post-metaphysical spirituality discussions and organizations, a lot of that is looking at different developmental phases and saying, oh, we over-identify religion with one phase, which is what Gebser called the mythic membership society, right? And so we think religion is identified as big blocks of people who believe in a particular dogma or legendary tale, and they preferably profess membership to this mythic membership group. And then when modernity came around, people looked at that and said, oh, I guess that's what religion is. I don't like that. <laughs> But when we take this zoom out, we go, okay, whatever religion is and spirituality as phenomenon, interpersonally and intrapersonally, it's got to be true for Paleolithic humans, tribal humans, mythic membership groups, modern humans, postmodern, metamodern, whatever all those things are that we happen to accept. So it's interesting for me personally to abstract a process out of all that and leave each of those operating systems and their typical languages aside, as well as their assumptions about the cosmology and ontology of reality, right? We take all of that stuff out and look for very simple patterns. And this is, Verveke and I have had, I don't know, four or six or whatever conversations on this topic on his thing, because I think there is something really useful that we used to call religion and spirituality, but we absolutely don't need to call it that. <laughs> <laughs> we could call it anything we like. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Certainly there is, you know, we can do weird shit in our head. Right. Uh, and as I've mentioned many times, I've had several uh, mystical experiences. I can easily put myself into a mystical state for 30 seconds where my ego just goes away. You know, I've tripped on LSD. I've done other hallucinogens. I've got a 36 hour protocol, which I can have make almost anybody have a mystical experience, but, uh, my view is those are brain states. Uh, those are brain-wide rhythms that are analogous to things like the default mode network and the task mode network, which are well-known organizational patterns, brain-wide organizational patterns. The default mode network is when we're daydreaming or uh, you know not particularly paying attention to something, or just kind of thoughts are just bopping around. And the other one, the task mode network, let's say you're changing the tire on a new bicycle that you don't really understand exactly how it works. And so you're like super intensely trying to figure out how do I take this apart in a way that I can put it back together again. That's a classic example of the task mode network. And I believe there are networks like that in the brain, which are uh, attractors, quite literally, uh, that represent, I would say, at least three uh, mystical, different mystical states. Uh, the first one is not that different than the default mode network and it is addressable from the default mode network, which is why sitting quietly, uh, if you've got any practice with it, can take you to an interesting new brain state. And then there's another one beyond that. And then I, you know, and, and then there's, I, I hypothesize that there's the, you know, the really far out one that the people who are practitioners of, uh, you know, guys, 30 years of Tibetan uh, sitting on a rock or whatever the fuck it is they do uh, can get their brains to get into that state for a little while. And that's all cool. Uh, and uh, you know, if you want to call that spirituality, which some people do, uh, I've got a friend, he and I sort of argue about it, but we sort of end up agreeing uh, though. He just still, he just can't help himself to use the more religious language. I say, so long as you're willing to say that the subjective experience of mysticism is uh, a brain state uh, analogous to other brain states uh, and that they may be very, some of them may be very hard to get to. Hey, I'm with you. Uh, we don't disagree at all. Uh, but 
where I stop is I say that does not, as far as I know, give anybody any insights into the nature of the universe or anything else uh, that that uh, is uh, yeah, that isn't accessible some other way. It's just a brain state. Yeah, I uh, sometimes I say meditation is not an ontology. <laughs> meditation is a way to manipulate your brain, and uh, it's good for you. Uh, you know, I have a little a couple of little meditations that I do each day uh, and for different purposes. Uh, one, uh, both of them just last under a minute and I find them useful, uh, but I don't consider them magic. <laughs> I, um, uh, my general view is that there's something that I would call spirituality in the individual and religionishness interpersonally which is the ability of subjectively active subsystems to coordinate in a way that produces something like a excess coherence, or, you know, a gestalt overtone that we can then enter into a relationship with. And we call that numinous experience spirit, <laughs> right? And collectively we call it religious and individually we call it spiritual, but it's a kind of uh, enhanced coordination and coherence of the subsystems um, that are within us or the bigger systems of which we are subsystems. Um, See, I would just call that communications. Yeah, exactly. And we can call it anything we like. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, what is a social being? It's a being that communicates with other social beings, right? Yeah. And don't need no magic. <laughs> exactly. And sometimes it seems like it's really working and yeah. things get vivid and there's this you know, we reach for poetic terms at the very least in order to express how good that feels and how powerful we feel when it's happening and how much we feel that's the right way for people to be interacting. But again, most of the I, most of the people I would call religious in human history did not call themselves religious. Even that's a fairly recent concept. And, you know, and if an alien anthropologist came to the planet, what they think of as our religion might be very different than what we think of as the religious people where... There's almost a Dunning-Kruger effect, I think, you know, where the people who are most likely to call themselves religious are probably the dumbest people, the worst at being religious, whatever that should mean. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, personally, I just didn't get rid of the term religious, but, yeah, people, fair but, enough. People, but if people find it useful, because I, I still, I guess I was raised a Catholic, so they probably <laughs> biased me. Uh, but when I hear the word religion, I think magic and, uh, you know, and yeah, I believe I would believe in magic if someone could prove it, but uh, otherwise I'm not going to. Uh, and so uh, I just find the word religion burdened by magic or supernatural stuff. I mean, something that, that is as useful as Buddhism, unfortunately, gets crapped up with stuff like celestial spheres and divas and all this horseshit. Uh, if you actually go back to the Pali canon, uh, the stuff that uh, old Gautama himself talked about, uh, he specifically warns against metaphysical speculation, et cetera, but they can't help themselves. They have to crap it up with this metaphysical nonsense, right? Uh, it just seems to be a human, uh, a common human weakness, uh, but it's one we can overcome. We've over we're overcoming xenophobia. We're overcoming patriarchy. Uh, we're overcoming ignorance around scientific things. Uh, and, I, personally, I believe we need to overcome our belief in magic and uh, and that we can. And then if we want to talk about what's going on inside of our heads and when we communicate with each other, uh, we can talk about it in a sensible, realistic fashion. Uh, one of the most uh, widely cited 
Ken Wilber formulations is this pre-trans fallacy idea. And the major application of it is to say that people get confused about what's pre-rational and trans-rational. And, you know, both the critics of that stuff and the affirmers of that stuff, they don't make a very good distinction about what is at least rational and then an attempt to build on that to include more things and what's actually a bunch of pre-rational, magical, superstitious malarkey. <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, yeah, you've probably heard me rant about it. You know, when you talk about these color thingies that these people uh, like to have in some of these spiral dynamics things, I say... You know, fuck the spiral. It's an arch. Or orange at the top. Orange men rule. Uh, to the left, more ignorant. To the right, more goofy. Right, and uh, I think that's uh, that's my interpretation of these uh, color dynamics. Uh, though, of course, I pick and choose. I believe I have useful tools from the green level and the teal level and all stuff. But uh, you know, on average, I say, ah, oh, the the goofiness increases as you go up the spiral to the right. Uh, uh, ignorance increases to the left. Orange, orange men rule. Right, orange patriot Jim Rutz. God damn it! <laughs> um, you know, it's it's one thing to say these things are just brain states, mystical states. Now, I, I personally, I would. What I want to mean by spirituality is almost the opposite of mysticism, because mysticism it focuses on state change, and I think it's the integration of states that is the developmental higher capacity. Nonetheless, when we look at states, we could say just brain states, or we could say these brain states are correlated to some kind of subjectivity, which fits in with that quadrants thing. And I know you've been conducting a series of interviews about consciousness, mm -hmm. and I'm curious what your take on it relative to brain states. You know, I, I imagine you are open to somebody proving to you that consciousness is a pre-existing condition of reality that just has neural correlates, but you probably haven't seen that proof yet. Is that, was that an adequate summary? Uh, yeah. In fact, one of the guests we had on the show, uh, Christoph Koch, uh, is a strong proponent of integrated information theory, uh, which uh, claims that consciousness is an inherent attribute of the universe and that a rock is conscious and a light switch is conscious. Uh, not... Uh, not, not what I would bet on, right? But, uh, you know, uh, Christoph Koch is a really smart dude, right? Uh, and uh, uh, Tonini, uh, the, the actual inventor of IIT, is another really smart dude. Uh, and so who knows? Uh, you know, let's see the proof. Uh, they're doing some, some work right now that might produce some evidence. Uh, personally, I'm a Cyrillian, John Searle, the philosopher from Berkeley. And what we call our human consciousness in the Cyrillian model is a purely biological mechanism, much like digestion. Uh, Cyril himself describes it as like respiration or digestion. Uh, and then the rut corollary is it also produces the same end product as digestion a lot of times, <laughs> which is shit. Right? Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, uh, and that it's expensive genetically and energetically. Uh, you know, the brain is 20% of our energy budget, despite being only 2% of our mass. And perhaps 20 or 30% of that is uh, to support the engine of consciousness. Uh, but I don't think there's anything. Uh, I just think it, it's a way that the brain operates to process, as we talked about before, perception and memory uh, to to uh, solve problems in the real world originally to allow us to successfully reproduce. 
uh, and it's been around for quite a long while. Uh, again, the Cerulean school would say that uh, consciousness goes back at least to the reptiles and maybe a little bit further than that, uh, may have evolved independently in the cephalopods, the, uh, the squid and octopus. Uh, they have things that sort of seem like consciousness, but they're quite different. And there's an evolutionary gap between uh, the lines. And so they pro one didn't evolve from the other. Uh, they probably evolved uh, independently. Uh, and, you know, so that's what, what I'd call the nothing special school of, uh, of consciousness uh, that, uh, you know, it, it's just what brains organized like ours uh, are like. It, it feels like something to be. Uh, and different brains might not even have what we think of as consciousness. Uh, and uh, Searle also warns that it's kind of sloppy thinking to say computer consciousness, right? On the other hand, what you can say is that a computer might have something that's analogous to consciousness. And I go back to digestion in the pharmaceutical and food industries, there are these big things called digesters, right? Which, which use fungi or bacteria to break down chemicals uh, to produce either food products or chemical products, paper, beer, you know, all those things. But the uh, industrial digesters are nothing at all like the human digesters, right? They're well, your stomach, your, your intestines, your esophagus, et cetera, but they serve a similar function. Uh, and so I could imagine a computer consciousness uh, being analogous to and being sort of generally like a consciousness, but it won't be the same, really, as a human consciousness. But we could call them both consciousness if we want to. But I kinda, I'd be surprised if yeah. uh, the IIT boys are right and that a rock is conscious. <laughs> but I might be wrong. That's right. I'm I'm not even sure whether a rock is a thing that could be conscious or whether it's just a bunch of things. <laughs> no, IIT would say it is a thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that it is different than the, the, the rock. Inside the rock is different than the non-rock. Uh, just as I strongly believe uh, that a like a human, you yeah. can actually draw a very fine line. What is me, right? Uh, which is what part of me are in real-time circulation of gases, food, and the elimination of waste products and the elimination of bad gases, which basically says my hair is not me, my fingernails are not me, and my teeth are not me, but my hair follicles are me. Uh, and I think using that fairly simple rule, you can draw a very tight uh, line of what's me and what's not. I've probably got one question left in my head to ask but before i get there is there anything else i should ask you know is there anything else going on in game b or in jim rutt that i haven't asked about that's important is there anything you want to mouth off about that you haven't mouthed off about yet or if you were me what would you ask you <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think we covered a lot of ground here. I can, I mean, there are things I could go off on some of my other uh, projects, but I think we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, you know, I would remind people if you're interested in this stuff, game-b.org, answer the three questions. Say uh, you're, we're not yet uh, for broad public, but we're now doing some podcasts. And so people that are on game B adjacent podcasts like layman's, uh, we're inviting to come uh, uh, check us out. Okay, uh, here's my final question. People are not necessarily elders just because they get old. They might even be less wise when they're old, if they, depending on what they've been practicing during their life. 
you strike me as being one of my legitimate elders in this sort of idea space. So I'm curious about who you think were your elders, who were, who was doing this kind of thinking? Who did you come across, whether in writing or in your real life when you were younger, who thought, yeah, that guy's onto something. There's a pathway there. That might be wisdom. <laughs> you know, people always ask me, who was my role model? And I say, nobody I can recall. You know, I picked and choose, uh, again, like I do with systems. Uh, you know, my parents were good role models in certain ways, but, you know, they were not intellectuals at all, but they were very good people uh, and they were very uh, effective people. Uh, you know, I had a couple of teachers that uh, uh, encouraged me, one in particular, my 10th grade biology teacher, uh, it was a really radical dude, right? Uh, and taught me that it was okay to really think outside the box and not give two fucks what the authorities thought. Let's see who else. One of my early bosses uh, was the one of the bravest people I've ever met in my life, uh, both intellectually and physically. If you're going to walk down a dark alley, uh, I'd like to have this guy at my side. You know, he would absolutely not run and leave you there. Uh, and he was just... Uh, fearlessly intellectually honest uh, in business. I uh, learned some Machiavellianism from another uh, guy who was uh, the lead investor and chairman of my first startup. Uh, in some ways, he was a good model of things not to do, but he was also a model of some things to do. Uh, so I would say I'm, I'm a eclectic borrower at a high rate. Uh, I don't point typically to, you know, any one or small number of people that I have borrowed from over the year. I borrow from everybody, you know, when John Lennon say, uh, amateurs borrow, uh, uh, experts steal. So I could steal from everybody essentially in, in terms of the literature, oddly enough, Robert Heinlein. I learned a lot from Robert Heinlein. H.L. Mencken, there's another unlikely source, maybe not so unlikely in my case. I even learned a little bit from Ayn Rand. I went through my Ayn Rand period. Now I'd say no, but uh, again, I'm sure I've, uh, some of those ideas uh, have been uh, retained. Uh, those are some of my older, you know, teenage type uh, sources. Uh, and, and since then, I, you know, I just I read 100 books a year, so you know, I'm borrowing all the time. So I guess my answer, my answer is I'm an eclectic learner borrowed from all kinds of people. Terrific. That's beautiful, Jim. It's uh, wonderful to talk with you. It's always fun, very stimulating. And I'm a huge advocate of all the projects that are going forward. And everybody who's interested should try to get in on this Game B networking platform. Well, that's great. Been great to be here. Thanks for inviting me back anytime. <laughs>